the art of hope. Kinetic manifesting. California woods, there lies a town pressed against the ocean by a sea of tall trees, an emerald green curtain of hemlock, fir, and redwood. And in the fall of 2015, having just finished working my third season, maintaining a field station in southwestern Colorado, I packed up my maroon-colored 1991 Ford F-250, affectionately known as Maxine, and drove the 1,500 miles to Arcata. Through the Utah Salt Flats, across Nevada, the loneliest highway in America, the Sierras, the Bay Bridge, just skirting through San Francisco, the Golden Gate, Bigfoot Country, and into the Redwood Forest. And what began as a week-long trip ended just shy of a year, marking not only the end of my third season, but also my last crew which I was a part of required multiple people to fulfill the hundred-year-old facility's constant demands, yet hiring from a remote village tucked outside a small ski town falls short every time. And to my detriment, I had not yet learned the power of the word no. So year after year, I bore the brunt of mostly going it alone, which, in the end, proved to be more than my body could handle. Not knowing how to allow myself to grieve, only knowing how to keep going through the losses of several relationships, and thinking back, possibly a lifetime. I was familiar with my tendencies to overextend myself emotionally in romantic relationships, but never with a job. At least, not to this degree. And in the process of perpetuating the non-reciprocity, putting in more than I get out, thinking more is better, or this time will be different. I began to crumble. And as I made my way toward what I had hoped would be some salvation or respite, I realized that I'd become a broken man.
I'd convinced myself of many reasons for renting my friend's spare bedroom when I arrived in Arcata. But the truth was, I had nowhere else to go. It rained for 40 days and 40 nights that winter in Arcata, and I began to feel I was living in some unwritten chapter of the Bible. The younger people pushed back at the irregularity of the weather, but the old-timers disagreed, saying, It's normal. It just hasn't happened in 40 years. But when I was a kid, or back in my day, they would say, feeling out my character, wondering if I'd stick around long enough to hear the tales from their youth. And usually I did, because usually I had nowhere else to go. Not wanting to be where I was, but not wanting to go back either. I was stuck. And I didn't know how to move forward. I didn't know how to let go. And for 40 days and 40 nights, the only thoughts I could conjure were, what have I done to myself? And how do I get out? Every day I'd go to the beach to sit in the rain and cry because being drenched felt like hiding. And then day 20, where either fate or my frozen skin would have it, an idea, a possible way out. Years earlier, I'd heard of a therapy called primal screaming, where the guttural roaring releases stuck emotions, screaming down to the fears tucked deep inside you, past the fears to the anger, anger to the sadness, sadness to the tears, and hopefully the release. So that evening when I returned home, I placed an ad explaining the process of primal screaming, asking if anyone would join me at the beach to scream. I literally couldn't think of anything better. Several people responded immediately, but all with vague interest. Certainly nothing to rely on. And so I continued sitting in the rain and crying. Until one day, day 40, when the rain lifted and I received the call from Tom. was friendly and open, but unnerved me with his approach. He told me he'd heard of primal screaming from a colleague while in school for theology 30 years earlier. And although he'd never done it, the idea had always stuck with him. Yet, Tom's main purpose for calling was not about screaming, but to tell me about an upcoming event in Arcata called the Kinetic Grand championship race and to see if I wanted to join 
the race requires a team, patience, and the ability to creatively build a themed vehicle from found parts and borrowed time. The more creative, the better. The only caveat being the vehicles must be powered by humans. So whatever your theme is, a shark, a monster, a prehistoric bird, they usually require lots of pedaling. But what makes these vehicles so tricky and the race so amusing and why its tradition has continued for over half a century is that its 50-mile course requires them to not only be compatible for road, but also sand and water. So, as your vehicle, or sculpture, as they call them, must roll and occasionally walk, they must also float. And what's sometimes frustrating, mostly challenging, but always amusing, is that not all of them do. And it's usually not until these sculptures are a few hundred feet into the water that the team is illuminated by the shortcomings of their testing protocols and rescue ensues. But if it went according to plan every time, it would be no race at all. And so, over time, it's become well understood that the point of the race is far less about who finishes first, but rather who finishes at all. The event begins on the green in Arcata and ends 50 miles south on a beach butted up against a large plot of donated land. A party ensues, live music, food, beer, war stories of victory and defeat. And the next morning, everyone begins again planning their vehicles for the following year. However, these details I learned were not from Tom, but rather weeks later from my roommate's boyfriend, Hans, born and raised in Arcata and an active member of the Kinetic family. Tom, rather, promptly disregarding primal screaming altogether, instead told me only of his disgruntled desires to possibly run the race again, explaining how challenging it's been to find people, to find parts, to find time. So when he asked me if I was interested to be on his team, I all but hung up the phone. And facing my own defeat, primal screaming was over. So seeking anything to keep me from going back to the ocean and crying, I decided it was time for something new. Something I thought might help me out of this terrible funk I was in. It was two weeks later when I began to learn a style of swing dance called the Lindsay Hop. 
I was having fun. Or at least, the class I'd signed up for was fun. But it was isolated under an umbrella of sadness, limiting me to almost unwelcomed moments of joy. Because I didn't want to feel the flood of grief all over again. The dancing was a distraction at best. But I could no longer find hope. The behavior that led me here, mistaking sacrifice for loyalty, and loyalty for love, fulfilling the needs of others while ignoring my own. I didn't know what I was doing in Arcata. It wasn't my home, and I felt it. These weren't my friends, and I felt alone. I was a few weeks into swing class when a man approached me. I'd seen him in there before, an older gentleman, tall, slender, unkempt gray hair to his shoulders, somewhat seasoned dancer, yet clearly still learning. His conversation was random at best. He wanted to tell me about a carpentry project he'd been working on, thinking I'd be interested and where one might envision the conversation as description alone. He instead brought his project with him to swing class. I'm very open to experiencing the randomness the world has to offer. I find it brings, for me, the greatest possibility of joy. But his approach was what I would now call a red flag toward shall we say, not the most grounded individual I'd ever met. Yep, had I been swayed by it, I would have found myself unknowingly veered right off my course once again. Mr. Sunshine, he introduced himself as, with tagline, it's not who I am, but who I aspire to be, was as I would come to find out, a Bible-thumping carpenter with a teetering temper. Where others say no to what could possibly be perceived as chaos, I usually dive right in. And in this source of simultaneous suffering and stimulation, I can never seem to look away. So what I've had to do is learn to look with different eyes. The following week after swing class, Mr. Sunshine invited me to his home to check out his carpentry work. 
and after verifying with mutual friends that I wouldn't end up in a hole in his yard, I agreed. In all fairness, his approach now made more sense. All of the trim, cornices, shelving, floors, and countertops were built by him. And they were impressive, to say the least. Without getting technical, because I don't know the technicalities of it, most of his work was different shades of wood glued together to make a sort of checkered or fragmented look. It was beautiful. I have a friend who learned this technique in art school, and the one thing I do know from him is that it's not easy. And Mr. Sunshine's work was flawless, right down to the cutting board and cutlery. And then he had me play his guitar. I've been playing guitar since I was 12 years old. I was 38 at the time. But when I pulled the acoustic out of its very fine case and began to strum, I was awed. This is the nicest guitar I've ever held, I told him. And it truly was. It played so beautifully. So I asked him, what kind of guitar is this? Noticing no markings as I peered through the sound hole, expecting to see the word Martin or Guild or Fender. I made it, he said. And as I strummed his guitar, I began to realize that I'd found a very unique individual in Mr. Sunshine. As if the name hadn't tipped me off already. And when he walked me through the backyard and into his barn-style garage, my attention was immediately taken by an odd DeLorean-like vehicle-ish structure hanging from the ceiling by rope and pulley. What's that? I asked, veering off during his explanation to a place where unicorns exist. And somewhere in that realm where the impossible is allowed to roam free and the best guitars are crafted at home and vehicles hang from ceilings and swing class is where you go to learn about carpentry. I began to hear again what he was saying and made a connection back to the ad I'd placed for screaming and the man who called to see if I wanted to join his team. And as the swing dancing carpenter who'd invited me back to his house to show me his time machine finished speaking, I knew Mr. Sunshine, who exudes subtle characteristics of Dr. Emmett Brown from the movie Back to the Future, was, you guessed it, Tom. And after lowering the kinetic sculpture from its hoisted housing and attaining the loosest grasp of an ocean one could possibly attain, Team Tom was born.
few weeks later, I was in swing class dancing with a young woman when I felt someone kick me in my calf. But instead of pain, it vibrated as though someone had banged a gong inside my leg. My partner grabbed me, and as she did, I turned to look for the Van Dam of swing that must have been standing behind me. But to my surprise, no one was there. And like a cartoon character that doesn't fall until they realize there is no ground beneath them, I dropped in pain. My leg swelled to twice the size, and my foot was solid black and blue. I had torn my calf muscle. And just like that, I was out of swing and off the team. I could no longer move faster than that of a wedding processional, half-stepping for months to come. Leap at the left, then right foot to center. With any deviation from this pattern, sending lightning up my leg. The second worst pain I'd ever experienced. I was down for the count. The day after the injury, I rescinded my participation with the team, but not before already having worked on the project some. Gathering team members, putting together ideas, beginning to build. But then Tom began to show signs of instability, snapping off at us with insults, walking away while mumbling expletives to himself, telling us all to fuck off. The team was feeling the pressure of Tom's frustrations, and so, on my calf tour, I welcomed the reason to walk away. I wouldn't be participating in the event any longer, but two months later, and with race day fast approaching, my recovery had healed to a point where I could step normally once again. Left, right, severe pains, groan, grunt, continue. Still crying every chance I got, literally hiding during lunch breaks so I could sob. I felt like a lifetime movie character. I'd been working this ridiculous dishwashing job I'd got just a week before the injury when half-step to two months later, a co-worker came into the kitchen to let me know in the form of a question. Dave, Mr... Sunshine is here to see you. I couldn't help but smile as I walked out to greet Tom. I've brought you two things, he told me. And the first is this. Tom revealed the helmet from behind his back, handed it to me, gave me a big hug and asked, will you come back to the team? I almost cried right there, which, given my current state, wouldn't have been a stretch. But the second thing I brought for you, he said, while reaching into his leather jacket and interrupting my tears. And before you answer, he continued, revealing a rolled-up t-shirt. We all decided on a name for the team, and I think you're really going to like it. Tom unraveled the shirt, gray, with Skull and Crossbones logo, which had written on it, the words primal scream and I was back
spend three weeks helping the team prepare a machine, hobbling around metal parts, sitting and tinkering with brake mechanisms. My leg still wasn't fully recovered on race day, but the megaphone we'd set up on the machine had a pre-recorded message of the team simultaneously screaming, so I felt understood. The town square was the starting point for the race and was filled with these sculptures, about 1,500 people, reporters, news cameras. And when they asked what our theme was, Tom would recite the history of Primal Scream, what it meant to us, and then hit the button he'd attentively labeled Scream. By the start of the race, it caught on. Everyone was screaming. And these machines, one looked like something you'd see in a Mad Max movie, another, a giant dragon, 20 feet long, 20 feet tall, with wings that flapped when you pedaled, all with people on them or in them, sometimes one, sometimes four. And there were dozens of them all around, bright, colorful, mysterious, dark, dangerous. And the crowd, they howled, drank, and laughed. The children running around, being lifted into monsters for photo opportunities. And when it was our turn to be introduced, to tell the crowd what we were all about, they screamed along. It was surreal, something I'd never seen before. And I thought about the moments in life that have brought me hope. Years earlier, I'd found myself fallen in love with a woman named Heather and her five-year-old daughter, Morgan. Morgan would make us laugh at her antics of lovingly poking fun at me, mimicking my morning grunts and groans or my favorite, a knock-knock joke she'd written about me, interrupting Dave, and how I often ramble on. We'd all howl together with laughter, having to regain our composure with long, deep, high-pitched breaths. And as we did, wiping tears from our eyes, Morgan would let out a high-pitched sigh, completely satisfied, and say, This never gets old. (laughs) Sending us all right back into laughter. And while standing alongside the green in Arcata, surrounded yet again by a time in my life where people peeled together to shatter the monotony of normalcy, I couldn't help but conjure the words of my old friend. I pedaled the first quarter mile and could pedal no more. The pain in my leg continued as lightning, and like touching an infected tooth nerve, it radiated throughout my body with tremendous grief. So at a quarter mile, I hopped off and wished the team well.
The race would finish in three days. The team asked if I could meet them at the put-in for the water segment the following day. I did. The conversion from street machine to watercraft went as smoothly as it could. Tom swore plenty. But I returned home that evening, conflicted between feeling sad to have abandoned my team and relieved I didn't have to spend the day with Tom and a floating DeLorean. But at the very least, I was going to meet them at the finish line. So on the morning of day three, I headed out with Maxine in that direction, but drove further than 50 miles past the finishing point to a river spot I'd found months earlier while meandering through the redwood forest. Down a small dirt embankment to the river's edge, covered with small, smooth stones. I took off my clothes to sunbathe and placed a towel out to lie on. But a sudden emotional redirection had me screaming within seconds. The physical pain would constantly trigger the emotional and vice versa, feeding each other back and forth every day until, without warning, I exploded. The compiled grief of loss after loss, always thinking, just keep going. More is better. This time will be different. I couldn't hold it anymore. first from my throat gradually came from a deeper place I could feel myself as a wild animal and the blood pumping hard through my heart hunched over with arms positioned to kill my belly was swelling with rage as I screamed the guttural roar I wanted everything out of me begging through wailing to rid me of this pain, banging my fists with terror, screaming out for my life like I was in a standoff with a bear. My only weapon was my body, and I put toward my defense every bit of energy I had, everything that was inside of me. I was fighting for my life. And when I felt I had no more inside, I dug deeper and screamed more, feeling my belly tight and fighting back, my neck like a rock, my arms like mallets hammering down again and again, the rage, the fear, the sadness, they all began to swirl, well, just as hard, pulling back like a tug of war. Get it out, 
I screamed louder and louder until, without warning, I was no longer trying to get it out, but bracing myself as though I were a pipe organ with all its keys being played at once. The tightness released through waves of nausea and lightheadedness as a palpable ball of energy slowly crawled its way through my solar plexus, my heart, throat, and out. And all at once, like a valve release on a steam engine, I could feel the trauma leaving my body. And for the next hour, I crumbled, crying like a grief-stricken widow, high-pitched moans and wailing, tears, dripping nose and trembling, shivering in the 90-degree sun. I was finally letting go. And when I no longer had the strength to kneel, I lied down and fell fast asleep, naked, alongside the Ill River. sun dipped behind the hill and the shadow fell across my face. I awoke. I felt as though my being and body had been trotted on by a horse. I was dazed and sore. I had very little throat and I was naked. But for the first time in months, I felt clarity and with it came a sense of hope. collected myself and my belongings and got back to my truck. Yet, once again, I was stuck. The truck was no match for the small, smooth stones from which it sank. I rocked back and forth via gas-clutch combinations, but rather than emerge, it dug in deeper. And with more effort, only making it worse, stopped, hopped out, and looked up to the sky. The day was beautiful, and I had only just realized. I was 70 miles from home, 10 miles from any gas station, and there was no cell service. And all I cared about for the next several minutes was that I could breathe again, when, suddenly, I heard a vehicle turn off and down the short, steep stretch of winding dirt road. And as it rounded the corner into my view, I thought, a Mazda MVP is not the vehicle I would have chosen. But when it came to a stop where the river meets a thick layer of small, smooth stones, I saw the Colorado license plate and thought, touche. He stepped from the vehicle, average height, approximately my age, and I informed him of my 
predicament. But instead of tugging, we began talking. He had just driven down from Arcata and was looking for a quiet spot to think. Newly transplanted, his current situation wasn't working out. He was feeling stuck and wasn't sure what to do about it. And so I asked, Have you tried screaming? And after we rocked his car via gas clutch combinations from the small, smooth stones from which it sank, we then went over to work on mine. My Ford F-250 weighed nearly 4,000 pounds. He was in an all-wheel drive Mazda MVP. In every right, a minivan. We tied one end of the strap to my hitch and the other end to his. He put the MVP in drive as I threw the truck into reverse. And in 10 seconds, we were both standing back outside in awe of the ease in which his vehicle pulled out mine. Most valuable player. He was so proud of it that he took a picture to document the occasion so we could show it to his Colorado friends. They constantly make fun of me for having such a subpar vehicle to theirs. He said, you just made my day. This'll shut them up. We talked for a while more. He told me he'd been grieving the loss of a relationship and his life as he knew it, and that he had come to the river to let it all go. He was angry and upset. I gave him a hug and imparted to him the part of my story where, time and again, the act of finding myself leads me back home, but how the crux in that always lies in figuring out where that is. When I pulled away from the river, he waved. And as I saw his Colorado license plate again, I wondered if he was thinking the same thing I was while looking at mine. It's time to go home. I wasn't feeling up to seeing anyone when I took the turn to meet Tom and the team, but I was sure I'd be in good company. The sun was going down again when I arrived, so with the team exhausted and resting accordingly, I said hello to them, grabbed a beer, and headed for the ocean. Slowly, folks began to fall in beside when someone yelled to me from behind, Hey Dave! What do you say when the sun goes down? We all scream. One last time? Well, I replied, flashing back to the ad I'd placed nearly four months earlier. I literally can't think of anything better. And with that, he yelled off into the crowd. Come on, we're all going to scream with Dave. My teammate, Rocky, now standing next to me, leaned in and said I know you couldn't be a part of this because of your leg but you should know 
We've been screaming for days. Well, the team is called Primal Scream, I said. No, he replied, as he turned me around, gesturing to the entire crowd. We've all been screaming for days. And in this moment, where anger and sadness and grief once lied, I could only find hope. And among those who still had the leg in them to begin piling in, Mr. Sunshine, at my side, with an arm flung over my shoulder as we all watched the sun take its evening dip. And with 400 kindred souls lined up to my lead, pressed against the ocean like a sea of tall trees, we all screamed our guttural roar, as primal as the blowing wind, through the hemlock, the fir, and the redwood. And in learning to look with different eyes, my screaming turned to laughter, and subsided with a sigh, I thought, this never gets old. listening to this episode of Never Too Late. Stories and more from me. <laughs>